You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek. We talk about current future issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. So to update you a little bit, uh, last week I was at the TAFIT conference. We had a podcast uh, talking to all the vendors, so if you missed that, uh, go online, check it out, and see the new technologies and things that were going on there. Uh, also, uh, some things that are happening just around the world and in our county and such. Obviously, it's voting time. Uh, currently, we've had a big turnout, so definitely get out and vote. We have 50 per, 56% of all of our voters in the county have already turned out, so take advantage of early voting for long lines later on. Uh, this is also a uh, time that we have some more upcoming conferences. Uh, one that uh, is going to be a great experience for a lot of people uh, due to some of the uh, changes, which is the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts. Uh, it is the first time they're doing a virtual conference. It's from November 16th through the 20th, uh, and it's only $30. Normally that conference is about uh, $400, and you have to travel somewhere. But it's truly an international conference. It's going to be at different time zones. There's going to be some speakers that are at 1 a.m. in the morning because that's the time that it's happening in Hong Kong or wherever they're speaking from. Uh, so uh, if you have an opportunity, you can check that out. And then the Association for Crime Scene Reconstruction is March 2nd through the 4th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're still debating whether that's going to be in person or not, uh, but uh, those are coming up. So today with I have uh, Echo Coleman from the DA's office. She's been here before in January. Thank you for joining us again, Echo. She is the chief of the domestic violence unit for the Montgomery County DA's office. So, uh, again, thank you for coming in. I know that you have a lot of projects going on. We're going to talk about some of those. One most recent one that we just attended, it was yesterday, right? Uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, <laughs> Tuesday was Flowers on the Lake, right? Yes. Yep. So tell me sort of how that came about, what uh, Flowers on the Lake were recognizing this month as... Domestic Violence Awareness Month is October. Okay. Yes. So that was part of our activities for our community and for our uh, professional community uh, here in Montgomery County. So um, every year, the DA's office really um, tries to do some sort of awareness event for domestic violence during the month of October. This year, uh, Flowers on the Lake was a brand new uh, idea, and I think it really um, went very, very well. We're very happy with it. So um, what we did was 2,020 carnations that we gathered together with all of our community partners at the Montgomery County War Veterans Memorial Lake here in Conroe. And we worked with the Veterans Commission for Montgomery County um, to host it at that space. We weren't able to open it up to the public this year because of COVID restrictions. So we live streamed it out. Um, that's on our Facebook. And um, I think we'll be able to share it with some of our community partners as well. Um, but we gathered together with first responders, fire, EMS, law enforcement. We had medical professionals, forensic nurse examiners. We had advocates, um, the Women's Center, Montgomery County Women's Center, we had local elected officials in attendance. We had city council members, uh, Mayor Pro Tem, um, Brett Ligon, my boss at the DA's office, was there. We had the chief of police and um, members from Conroe po Police Department, the sheriff's office. All five of the different um, constables' offices were represented. I know Constable Ryan Gable was there. Um, so we gathered with just a number of people, um, and we all took carnations. And each carnation, there were 2,020 of them. And the reason why we chose that number is because domestic violence happens behind closed doors. And it happens where people don't see, and oftentimes no one ever talks about it. And so we don't know the true number of victims in our community, but we do know they're out there. And so the year 2020 has been very tough on a lot of people. Um, and so we chose 2020, 2020. And we took those carnations, and each of our community partners um, put them out onto the waters of the lake. And each one represented a victim or a survivor of domestic violence in our community from this year. Uh, and we have a, a couple of clips uh, from uh, that uh, event that you did out there, uh, a speech that you gave, and uh, then we'll follow it up in a second uh, from our district attorney. Thank you to all of our community partners who have come out this evening. Um, we really appreciate all of these folks gathered here together in honor of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So I've prepared a short speech to make sure we all know why we're here. First of all, this gathering celebrates bravery, strength, and safety in our community. 
We are here today with members from law enforcement, first responders, medical professionals, legal professionals, victim advocacy organizations, our city and county elected officials, members of our courts and judicial system. Together, all of you standing here together represent hundreds of other people across our county, people who are right now out in our county working actively to protect victims from domestic violence. We also have with us today 2020 purple carnations that we will be placing on the waters of this beautiful lake that the Veterans Commission has allowed us to be here. Carnations are a symbol and they have represent the meaning of bravery, strength, and safety. We chose 2,020 of them because to put a number on the number of people in our community who suffer from domestic violence is impossible. Victims of domestic violence suffer in silence, behind closed doors, and they often don't call for help when they need it. Our carnations today are all purple, which is the color of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Each flower that each of you will be releasing today represents a victim. It represents a survivor. It represents a person in our community who has suffered from domestic violence. And this past year, more than ever before, our community has faced an increasing challenge when it comes to victims of domestic violence. Even earlier this year, as we rushed to try to protect our community members from the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus, we shut down the public places in our community to prevent that spread. But as a result of that, victims were then at home, they were further isolated, and they were unable to get out and ask for help. And so we reached a point where there were a, a giant increase in the amount of cases and the amount of calls for help that our community received from victims who were at home with their abusers during the lockdown. And as those frantic calls came in, our community partners, each of you who stand together with us today here, rose to the occasion. The Montgomery County Women's Center, they never closed their doors. They continue to provide shelter and to provide safety. The brave men and women of our law enforcement and our first responders, they worked around the clock to help those in need. Medical professionals, victims advocates, they continue to respond to those who needed their strength when they did not have any of their own. Each of these groups responded with bravery in the face of crisis, with strength for those who had none, and they provided safety for those in need. And so today, each of us stands here. We stand here in solidarity. We stand here as a united force against those who would commit violence on the vulnerable. We send a message to abusers in our community. We say to you that we will not back down. We will come after you if you choose to abuse, if you choose to harm and to hurt our women, our children, and anyone who needs us in our community. We will not hesitate to hold you accountable for hurting those whom you should love the most. We will remain brave. We will remain strong. And we will keep those victims safe. Finally, I want to talk to those out there in our community who are suffering from domestic violence. You need to know that each person here represents an entire team of people. We have never stopped responding and we will never stop working for the safety and the well-being of anyone who calls for help. Even during the darkest of times, we will not stop in our duty to serve, to protect, to shelter, and to assist. Today, we honor the victims. We honor the survivors, and we want you to know that you are stronger than you know. 
you are braver than you believe. And when you call for help, we will do everything we can to keep you safe. Thank you. Echo, you touched on something great there. It's just that uh, we're dealing with domestic violence. There are so many partners, so many people that are involved in bringing justice and uh, to give help to those victims and such. And I think you did an amazing job out there. You know, and other persons out there certainly uh, has given the support to this community and has done a great job in focusing on things that are needing to be addressed in our community, whether it's drunk driving, whether it is uh, crimes against children, certainly domestic violence. Uh, as your boss and our elected official, uh, uh, DA Brett Ligon, uh, he was out there, and we'll give him uh, a moment. We had uh, his speech that he had given. And a 35% increase in domestic violence arrests. That's a 35% increase in a crime that's already tragically prevalent and can carry with it fatal consequences. Two thirds of all the all the murders in Montgomery County are domestic violence murders. Think about. that two-thirds of all the murders in this county are domestic violence murders those are numbers that are 100 percent preventable this year more than ever prosecutors and fire first responders have worked tirelessly to protect and give voice to those who often suffer in silence tonight's event symbolized the continued commitment of law enforcement ems nonprofit organizations and the criminal justice system to serve and protect victims who suffer at the hands of people who should love them the most. This evening has been beautiful and it's our sincere hope that it honors victims and brings awareness to the important issue of domestic violence prevention. But please know it will be for nothing if we leave here and fail to carry the torch forward. The torch forward. We're all charged in one way or another with continuing an important work of protecting victims of domestic violence, of helping them heal, and of seeking justice on their behalf. I'm grateful once again for the role each of you play in preventing this horrible crime, and I encourage you to push forward and keep fighting this important fight against, violence, against domestic violence in our county. Thank you. You know, I said before, you know, Brett Ligon has just done a great job for our county, and you certainly see that, and the need for that as compared to other counties that even surround us and the problems that they have when they don't have the support of uh, a good DA and such. And um, as he'll be the first to tell you, it's not him. He brings in some great people, and he has a great team over there, including you and many other prosecutors that we work with on a regular basis. And y'all make him look very good. Uh, <laughs> Thank so. you. We do. We have a great, a great office, um, and we, we really um, enjoy the support of Brett when we do events like this. That um, that he really does believe in the cause that we have for domestic violence, for child victims, um, for victims of drunk drivers, and just for the safety of our community in general. So to talk a little bit about domestic violence here. Uh, so obviously everything's been affected by COVID. Uh, yeah. and uh, the court system and everything else, but just the nature of domestic violence. Uh, Y'all have seen an increase. Well, how has COVID affected the cases coming in, domestic violence in general? So I think that um, it was especially apparent right away. Um, you know, COVID in Montgomery County, there was the lockdown portion um, just to kind of keep everybody from spreading the virus in March. It happened in March. And at that point, we really had to kind of jump into a different mode of how to respond to uh, domestic violence, how to respond to calls in general, um, you know, putting people in the jail and what's going to happen. And there was a lot of moving parts and pieces. And what we did notice um, almost immediately was there was just this increase in the number of calls for help. Um, 911, um, we ended up responding a whole lot to domestic violence calls. And um, when we went back and looked at the calls and then we looked at the arrests, the increase over the first few weeks in March was about a 36% increase wow. in, in arrests. And then back in through April and moving forward, it went up to a 44% increase. And so, and that was compared to the year before. So we, we knew that the numbers were escalating and we understood it to be that when domestic violence victims ask for help when they cry out, it's usually not a 911 call. 
statistically, when victims call for help, they talk to a friend or a family member or a coworker or somebody else that can help them kind of escape the situation. They'll call a hotline or talk to um, an advocate. But when you are at home and you're not able to leave your home, you're not able to escape the abuse by going out, going to see a friend, going to work even because everybody was working from home. The schools were shut down. So parents, even if they could go to work, were required to stay at home with their kids. And that that really created something that was more like a pressure cooker situation. You have a lot of external stress. You have a lot of anxiety. You have a lot of fear of what's going to happen. And when you put that into a situation that's already volatile, that's already likely to escalate into violence anyway, the chances of that happening just increase exponentially. And so that pressure cooker situation created an increase of violence itself, but it also created this situation where victims weren't able to get out, and so they called for help from 911 because that's the only people that were still out there, um, still responding. And so we saw both an increase in the violence, but we also saw an increase in the request for help. Um, and I think that's kind of what we watched happen um, throughout that period. And it, it has stayed at, a, at an increase. I couldn't give you the stats as of today, right. but we know that the coronavirus is not done with us yet. Right. Um, and so we know around. that <laughs> we're, still, we're still trying to figure out how best to help the people in our community. I think we're better at it. Um, now, as far as opening back up and and schools are back in session and, and, you know, the other flip side of that is kids who were at home who experienced domestic violence or who experience abuse, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, they watch it happen in their homes. They outcry when they go to school or when they see people outside of their home that are safe to tell. And so we saw when school came back into session, we saw a huge increase in the reports of domestic violence in the home and sexual abuse in the home and things like that that happened. Um, that's when those children were able to get out and talk about it. So that lockdown period was really, really tough for victims in our community. Yeah, and I think just to define it, because a lot of people, when they hear domestic violence, they just think husband and wife. Right. That's right. It, you know, and, and that law changed many years ago, yes. defining basically just a relationship uh, yes. in the home and whether that's child, whether that's significant other, partner, whatever. It's, right. It all falls under that. Right. In Texas, the law is uh, a three part uh, definition for family violence. So there's a household member. So anyone living in the household that can include a mom's boyfriend or, um, you know, a dating relationship between mom that's hurting the child. If they're living in that same household, then that still applies as family violence. Um, roommates. Right. We did see some roommate altercations during the lockdown. People stuck at home together that they may not get along anymore. Um, so we did see roommates. And then we also have the intimate partner relationship or the dating relationship. And that is probably the most common thought um, when we see domestic violence and people talking about what happens in the home. And then the third one we have is family member. So that goes up to grandparents, down to grandchildren, and out to um, first cousin. So anybody that is living in that home that is committing violence on another person, that is all what we call family violence. All right. So now, obviously, this, as you had mentioned before, it affected the, j uh, the jail affected the court so how'd y'all work around that I mean obviously y'all weren't having jury trials right so the court's backing up they're sort of limiting the interaction in the jail which there's only so much space in there so what were some of the challenges how, how'd y'all handle those well I think in in earlier times in our uh, technological uh, abilities this would have probably been even more difficult but with um, online videos we were able to get a semblance of um, a court setting. So if someone was incarcerated, then we would put them on a Zoom conference with the court, with the attorneys, um, attorneys for the state, attorneys for the defense. Our judges here in Montgomery County were so diligent in developing continuing to develop and it changed it felt like it changed every day, probably right. about every week. but just how are we going to do this? How are we going to keep? making sure that victims are safe, but also holding offenders accountable 
And if somebody is not needing to be in jail, then do, how do we get them a hearing so that they can make a bond? Um, so we used a lot of electronic hearings, um, and people who worked remotely from home would zoom into the, the court dockets. We're still doing those um, quite a bit for people on bond. Um, we've gotten a little bit more back to normal in the last month or two, and I think this month, and especially starting in November, we'll be reconvening jury trials for the community. So we're, we're moving a little bit past that and able to kind of stop the spread here in the, in the community. Um, and as long as we're able to practice safe uh, distances and safety protocols in the courtroom, sanitizing the courtroom um, between people coming in, right. uh, we're back in the courtrooms. That's awesome. Well, one thing I want to talk to you about and, and to all the listeners, so in Texas, as we end this election next week, and we're about to put new legislatures uh, in the state, uh, it is also one of our legislative years, which means that, uh, and I always tell anybody, if you have a problem with the law, if you want to change the law, this is the time. Uh, you can make your suggestion to your representatives. That's exactly what you're doing next week is you're putting the people in office that uh, can help you with that, make those changes. So if there's a law out there that you feel you need to change, contact your representatives. You can reach out to them and do that, especially law enforcement and crime scene. Instead of just griping about why this law is this way, <laughs> uh, you have the ability to change it. That is one of uh, your rights as a citizen to reach out to them. So I wanted to pose you with the question, Echo, as far as in your expertise, uh, obviously in domestic violence, uh, we've seen the law change so much over uh you know, the past 20 years uh, mm. drastically. Yes. So where do you see it going next? Where do you see it could be improved? What What else could we do, I guess, in domestic violence legislatively? So I think that there's, there's always room for defining the offenses involving family violence a little bit better or maybe changing some of the punishment ranges. Our legislature in just the past few sessions has given us some really great um, laws that have actually... Um, helped our victims in protecting them. Um, you know, in the Code of Criminal Procedure, there's a statutory duty for the courts and for law enforcement and um, prosecutors to protect the victim, especially in family violence cases. And it's, it's uh, I think it's 5.06 in the Code of Criminal Procedure. And part of that is using the laws that the legislature gives us in order to uh, achieve that result. The other side of what prosecution is, is holding the offender accountable. So, as far as what happens to somebody and does the punishment fit the crime? I think that when we talk about the newer laws, we're talking about things like assault on a pregnant person. Okay. That went into effect in our last legislative session. So assault on a pregnant person, it used to be just a class A misdemeanor bodily injury, and the pregnancy part wasn't really um, an enhancement, and now that has become a third-degree felony. So but there's also no further enhancement. So if you take the other laws that we have and you have strangulation on a family member, right. that back in 2011, somewhere around there, the legislature said, well, that's no longer a class A, let's move that to a third degree felony. The reason why is we have high lethality indicators. We have big red flags for strangulation in an intimate partner relationship. And so they moved that to a felony to acknowledge that level of dangerousness that we see. We acknowledge that it's repetitive. We acknowledge that it is escalating and that that victim is in grave danger for their life. And so the same way with assault on a pregnant person, strangulation at first was just a third-degree felony. And then they added, if there's a prior family violence conviction, it's now a second degree. It enhances it based on that repetition and that indication right. of lethality. And I want to talk to you about that. So the mm -hmm. continuous family violence, right? So basically sort of what's that definition? What is that what does that give y'all a tool to do? Okay. So continuous family violence is um, two Class A misdemeanor assault causing bodily injury on a family member. Two offenses that have not been adjudicated or not been convicted um, in the space of one year or less. Does it matter where they are? Can it be no. anywhere in the U.S. or Correct. Texas? So the the violation and the facts under supporting the, the offense must be the same or substantially similar to the laws of Texas, which is Chapter 2201, Subsection A, Assault Causes Bodily Injury. But it can be, if I had jurisdiction, it could be one happened in Montgomery County and one happened in Harris County or one happened in Denton County or wherever. We could take both of those and prosecute them as one charge 
in one county, and it can be two or more. So that's the indicator that we have, that's a red flag, that the violence is escalating and it's a quicker repetition. And so this is how many of the suspect has committed. It doesn't matter if, if it's different victims correct. or otherwise. It's focused on the suspect's actions or the defendant's yes. actions. Yes, because oftentimes we find that when violence starts to increase for a suspect, that is how they respond to conflict. And that is how they have learned to de-escalate the conflict. And they use violence to manipulate the situation to control whoever the conflict is with, and that is how they win the fight, basically. So what we find is that when it escalates to the point of violence, statistically it's likely to escalate with any partner, with any conflict, with an intimate partner. And so if that victim of the first one realizes, hey, this isn't healthy, right, this out. is toxic, I got to get out of here, and they leave the relationship, that offender is much more likely, statistically speaking, to go to the next victim or the next person and make them a victim. Um, and so that is what we look at. So we know that it's the offender's behavior and not the victim's behavior that is what the focus is for that continuous family violence. And it's the point that we must do something to intervene because it's going to escalate even further. And what we're trying to do is prevent a homicide. Right. And, you know, I'll give you, it was a tough question for me. And I'll see if you have any better insight. I had a, uh, I had a, uh, a murder, a capital murder, but part of that capital murder was a sexual assault of another person in the house. Right. Um, and the one who the sexual assault was against uh, later came to me and, and wanted to have a conversation. And this was, uh, she was 15. This was her first relationship that she'd ever been in. And so her question to me is, you know, how does she trust someone? H how do you know that you're getting into a battle? I mean, what are some of the red flags? Where are the signs right. that, you know, and obviously what she was asking is, could I have avoided this? And right. obviously the answer is, is no, you did nothing. But, right. you know, what do you tell someone, you know, to look for? I think that when I talk to victims in my cases, that is probably one of the top three questions that I get is how do I not, how do I not do this again? What did right. I miss this time? And how do I not let it happen in the future? You know, we don't get into relationships right. thinking, oh, this is great. This person's going to hurt me later. We think that person's great and that person's on their best behavior and you're on your best behavior. And it isn't until those barriers and walls come down that there's a conflict that turns into violence, right? And so it's not that that victim expected to start that relationship as a victim. And all of a sudden that's happening to them. And so then they, they think about to... What did I miss? And some of them, it may be obvious, but others, it's not. So um, what we have are called lethality factors. And there's um, a group of those that are statistically relevant to predicting future violence on behalf of an intimate partner offender. Okay, so some of the biggest ones are threatening a weapon. Now, it doesn't have to be pointing a gun. It could be just taking the gun out of the bedside drawer and putting it on top of the on the bedside cabinet. I hear this type of thing a lot. It was just to remind that victim that it's like there, it's there. Right. and that that person's in control and they can choose to use it even if they don't choose to use it. So it's not an act of violence there, but it's a threat and they feel very threatened. And so they change the victim changes their behavior in order to pacify that abuser and to keep them happy. Um, so that threatening or use of a weapon is, is a 500% increased likelihood that that relationship or that offender in a relationship um, will result in a homicide. Then we have things like stalking. Okay, stalking behaviors aren't necessarily um, the stranger type stalking that we always think of, or like celebrities who are being stalked right. by their crazy fans. Um, stalking happens mostly in intimate partner relationships, and it can actually happen during a relationship. This is where your partner um, checks your phone all the time. They install apps to see where you are and location apps, and then they come after you and, and yeah, accuse you, you of what, you, right, what you've been doing. That's stalking behaviors. Right. That is unwanted pursuit. That is too aggressive of a pursuit of their intimate partner. Um, texting them all the time, blowing up the phone if they don't answer, and just constantly barraging them with calls and voicemails over and over. Those are all stalking behaviors that creates a fear in that victim of what could happen if they don't comply with their abuser. 
one in three victims who are killed in a domestic violence relationship have been stalked by their abuser either during the relationship itself or shortly after that separation. We also know that victims, when they leave their abuser, there is a 75% increased likelihood that that time shortly after separation is when they will be killed in that relationship. So a lot of people think when they've never experienced domestic violence, they don't have um, a working knowledge of it. Well, why doesn't she just leave? Right. That's, that's the question. Th- why doesn't question. she just leave? Well, I'd that's, leave if that was me. Oh, right. Well, you don't know. Right. right, because you haven't done it. And so oftentimes the safest place for a victim is keeping that offender happy because they know, well, if I leave, that's when he's going to kill me. And he's told me. Right. Uh, you will die and right. your children will die if you ever leave me. And that's a real threat. You know, the, the majority of homicide suicides, okay, are in Montgomery County are domestic violence related. And oftentimes it is at the point that there is a, a, an attempted separation. That victim is trying to say, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave you. Or it's at the actual time of a separation. And that is the most dangerous time. And so that victim knows that if I stay, at least I'm still alive. And maybe I can keep them happy and control it to the point that I won't get killed until there's a safe place for me to go. Um, And I think that the biggest red flag that we have is strangulation. So at the point that violence occurs, it is not about the violence itself. It is about the message that that violence sends to the victim receiving the violence, that that person is in control of them, that they can do what they want to that person, and that the result of not complying with their demands is that they will be hurt. Okay, so oftentimes the violence just shows the victim, this is what I'm capable of, but I don't have to use it every time. I can just remind you that I'm capable of it. But statistically, the violence is going to escalate and it's going to take more every time that it happens in a relationship. So it starts with that class A bodily injury, but by the time that a person is putting their hands around someone else's neck and telling them, I can kill you right now if I choose to. I'm choosing not to, but I'm telling you, I get to decide when your next breath is. I get to decide how much air you get. I get to decide if you get another one or you get another two right? And that is the most terrifying thing to think that this is it and my life is completely out of control. That sense of impending doom is such a traumatic experience for victims who experience that. Um, And so at the point that strangulation occurs, we know that it is a 700 to 800% chance that that victim will die in that relationship. So it is the biggest red flag that we have, statistically speaking. Well, and I know when we spoke back in in January, uh, you were working on a project exactly that, the lethality response team. Yes. Uh, I'm sure that that was affected a little by COVID. I don't know. Were y'all still responding to scenes? What was... Yes. So that was, um, you know, when I talked about, we had to figure out how to even, you know, get through the lockdown, right? right? So um, what we have is our DV alert. which is Assault Lethality Emergency Response Team. And we work with, um, in Montgomery County, we work with Texas Forensic Nurse Examiners. So TXF&E, they were also out at the Flowers on the Lake with us. They never, never stopped. So they're a mobilized unit of forensic nurse examiners, and they will do sexual assault examinations for adults or for children. They will do forensic interviews for adults, and they will also um, do strangulation physical exams. So we partnered with them in Montgomery County on the very high lethality cases. So severe injuries, um, indicators of our lethality assessment that we have our law enforcement do at the scene on strangulation cases. When we have a strangulation that has all of the red flags and indicators, this was a very serious one. This is the point where the next step is a homicide. Um, We try to get that victim in for a forensic nurse examination and they would do a head to toe assessment. And we try to do that as quickly as possible. I think our window is less than 72 hours. Um, And the reason why we do this is because strangulation isn't just about I survived and I can still breathe. When you apply pressure to the neck, it's a very, very soft, tender area. There's soft tissue and your trachea and your veins and your arteries that get crushed by the application of pressure, that external application, it tears inside of there and it can damage the inside of the neck um, and the injuries are all internal. 
So we have victims who die of strangulation and there's nothing on the outside, maybe other than a couple of red marks to show what is going on inside. And that second part of that is that those internal injuries don't just go away. Um, the body will often expire due to delayed death of the collapse of the of the airway or tears in the arteries that cause blood clots that go up into the brain, cause embolism or stroke, um, go down into the lungs, the blood clot in the lungs, and that victim will die. It could be weeks or months later. So now have we been doing this long enough that you've seen the benefits of it in prosecution yet? Yes. So part of it is just getting the word out and educating how dangerous it is. Part of it is educating our law enforcement so that they understand how to investigate this is a different type of offense. It's not really what you see. Um, Everybody wants to say, well, that's a bad assault because there's a big black eye or that's a bad assault because there's a cut. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. And, and it's undeniable when you can see it, but strangulation is a completely different type of assault. And so um, educating our law enforcement on what to look for, that's kind of what this DV alert is about. So Getting them to talk to somebody right away, hey, this is what I've got, this is what the victim's telling me, this is what I'm looking at, and then saying, okay, this is what else we can do to get more information from that victim, to learn more about what's going on in that relationship, and that way we get those indicators of how severe it is. So that was one of the first steps in this, and the second part is getting those victims to medical help. Um, because what we want to do is life-saving intervention. We do not want them to go home that night and say, I'm fine, it's okay, I can breathe, I'm really sore and raspy and my throat hurts and it's swollen, but I'm fine, right? Because that swelling actually can later... increase overnight. Yes, can occlude and you can die in your sleep from it. So, um, So making sure that those victims have the opportunity. And so what I have seen consistently across the board with this is law enforcement understanding and being able to talk to victims themselves about, hey, we really worry about you. We don't want to leave you here without you getting checked out. At least let us get EMS out here to check on you. Let's get you into the hospital and get checked out. Getting them that life-saving treatment, getting them the scans to see if all the blood flow is going through their veins the way it should. You know, we don't want to lose blood flow to the brain. Brain damage happens within just a couple of seconds when you start to impede. So um, that has been a huge increase. And then the use of the forensic nurse examiners, they get touch DNA on the neck, um, they get a head-to-toe assessment, and they also do a medical assessment about how they got those injuries, but they also talk about what happened with that abuser. And oftentimes, where a victim may be on scene and the offender's sitting in the cop car and they're nervous about what they're going to say, they get in with a medical professional, and that medical professional is able to talk to them at their own pace in a traumatically informed way so that that victim is able to express what happened. We get so much more background information and we're able to really fully interview them. And those medical records are often admissible even when the victim later is not there to testify. So it's really increased our ability to walk into a courtroom with confidence and say, I got everything I need to hold this guy accountable and um, I'm not afraid, you know, we're going to do this. And so even when the victim isn't able to do it for themselves, we're able to do it on their behalf. So now one of the, um, you know, obviously we have violence that keeps repeating and repeating, you know, solutions for for our victims out there. And I know that uh, sometimes there's confusion over a restraining order, a protective order. Right. So if you can sort of explain what those are, how they're used in in domestic violence and which one's appropriate. Right. So I'll talk about very specifically here for anyone listening, because I know this goes out beyond Texas, but I'm talking about Texas law here. Most states and I think other countries have very similar laws, but I don't want to misguide anyone. So um, and especially about Montgomery County, um, because different agencies and different um, governmental bodies and different advocacy organizations, it's different across the board. So um, the first difference that you asked me about is the difference between a protective order and a restraining order. So a restraining order is a civil action. You go to a magistrate judge and you ask the magistrate judge to issue an order that says that that person cannot come near you or to your house, right? That's the standard. Um, That is a civil enforcement. Which basically means when they do it, 
and the police yes. show up, they're not going to jail for violating Right. You would have order. to basically sue them in court in order right. to hold them responsible. So a restraining order is something more like where I would want to keep my neighbor off my lawn than my domestic violence abuser. Correct. Right. It is not an immediate um, action type resource. Now, a protective order can be issued under the Code of Criminal Procedure, um, it can be issued under Chapter 7 and several other family law um, chapters, okay? And they're set out in the Texas Penal Code as to what types of protective orders. But almost every other type of protective order in Texas applies for when we talk about being able to arrest for a violation. So an emergency protective order is issued by the state or requested by the victim, the judge, the state, or... Um, the magistrate at the court. And that only goes into effect, and again, I'm talking about the Code of Criminal Procedure and Emergency Protective Order, that only goes into effect after an arrest has been made and at the first procedural hearing after that arrest. So they go to what we call PC court, probable cause court. That is the only time that as the state, I can request a protective order on behalf of a victim, okay? okay? So that lasts. 31 days, 61 days, or 91 days, depending on the level of the assault and depending on the egregiousness of it, okay? Once that expires, it cannot be extended and it cannot be moved into another type of protective order. So that is really, the legislature gave prosecutors that in order to make sure that that separation, remember that statistic about that 75% increased chance that at the time of the separation, that is when the victim is most likely to be killed. Right. That's what that protective order does, is that place of separation, okay? There's a level of protection there that if it's violated, the police can go in and make an instant arrest. In fact, the code says you Michelle, must yeah. arrest, right, for a violation. So the other types of protective orders that we're looking at, those are more permanent protective orders. A permanent protective order in Texas um, is generally about two years, but it can be extended for good cause. You would have to go back and request that it be extended. Um, you can now get a lifetime protective order, and we see that more and more. I can't remember how many years ago the legislature changed that ability, but they finally extended it to a lifetime protective order. So now is that still through the prosecution that, no. that deals with protective orders of that nature? No. So in Montgomery County, I do not have jurisdiction to apply for a a protective order under any family load family code the only one i can do is that emergency protective order okay so a permanent protective order the victim must apply as a civil proceeding so they can take an attorney with them they can do it on their own we often recommend they talk to a legal advocate or a legal services professional that can advise them on that but i can't even give legal advice to a victim on a civil proceeding so we have to refer them out now in Montgomery County, the, the governmental body that can represent a victim on a civil proceeding is the county attorney's office, right? And so just on the legal analysis side of that, if I am prosecuting an offender for hurting this victim, I cannot then go and legally represent the victim in a civil proceeding as her attorney, which is what I would be doing right. on a on a permanent protective order hearing. So I have to have that wall there, which is why I have to refer them out. I know other counties, they have that set up where they can go to the same office. And um, I think the government code is a little different for every county, but that's how it works in Montgomery County. So in order to apply for a permanent protective order, that victim has to go and face that abuser in court. They have to serve them with that protective order, and they have to have the opportunity for the offender to come in and respond to the protective order in a hearing that is often on the record. So it can be very intimidating and very scary. Sure. So now... During that uh, time frame of the EPO, the Mercy Protective Order, yes. that time that we're hoping that they're making arrangements to get out yes. of this situation. So what services, and I know they're different all over, but what services do we offer uh, to victims in Montgomery County? Where can they go, things that they can right. receive these for? So we are very, very fortunate in Montgomery County that we have a centrally located um, victim services organization. It's the Montgomery County Women's Center. And our office, the DA's office, has partnered with them. Um, and we actually have an advocate from the Women's Center co-located in our office. It's another um, program that we developed in, I want to say, 2016. It's called the DV Co-op. Um, and that victim's advocate works in our office and is able to take referrals directly when victims come in to get them into counseling, get them into shelter, 
get them into relocation services, get them in to talk to a legal professional who works for the Women's Center that can help them. Um, and so all of those services that somebody is needing, you know, when a victim decides to leave, they don't just get to leave. They have to file for divorce or else the offender can come in and kick her out of the house. They have to file for child custody or else the offender can come in and take the children and leave state with them and there's no recourse, right? And so victims have to do a lot of things in order to separate themselves from somebody that they, their entire life is intertwined. And on top of that, there's the dynamic that they're terrified of them, right? right? So, The Women's Center helps with all of that. They help with crisis intervention. They help with safety planning. um, They help with um, employment opportunities. They make sure that children who are in shelter are still going to school. So they do a wonderful job. So that's really um, the first step is making sure what can we give you. Now, children in the home... Um, are also victims. And we know that children who experience domestic violence, whether they witness it or they are themselves physical victims, um, they will, statistically speaking, grow up to either be victims or abusers themselves. That is the cycle that repeats itself. So we want to make sure that services are available for children who are also part of maybe an adult um, domestic violence case. And so we um, offer counseling through Children's Safe Harbor, We offer counseling through the Women's Center, and we want to make sure that those children are getting the tools that they need to have a healthy relationship going forward. Well, in most of the services, they they address what I would consider control factors of what this defendant has put in place. You know, taking away a job, take away from friends, threaten to hurt the kids, take the kids, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those things. And it seems that each specific area is, is trying to address those things so they can at least have that confidence or, you know, that he's not in control anymore or right. she's not in control, whatever situation that you're able to get out of that situation and we're here to guide you, you know, mm-hmm. it still requires a great deal on their part. It does. It does. And it can be very overwhelming. One of my, one of my big goals and dreams for Montgomery County is a family justice center where someone experiencing domestic violence, there doesn't even have to be a criminal case filed. They can go in and they can talk to an advocate. They can talk to um, legal professionals. They can talk to someone about their children. They can try to figure out all of those things in one place, right? Because All of the different things that go on, it's so overwhelming. When you have a criminal case, that's just one part of the things that are going on. Um, And here your offender is trying to get you to drop the charges, and they're trying to force you into a situation where you don't have any other opportunities, so you have to go back to them. And it is institutional control. Oftentimes abusers use our justice system to continue to control the victim right? They will get them arrested or they will accuse them of false report. They will destroy their criminal history. They will get them addicted to drugs and get them arrested for drug possession. They will try to get their kids taken away for anything that they've ever done. Um, And they, they use the fear to ensure that that victim is not strong enough to file that protective order, not strong enough to go in and, and actually stand up to that abuser in court. And so my dream is that We have a place where victims can go to get all of their needs met because it's emotional needs, it's spiritual needs, it's physical as far as where do I live, how do I support my kids, how do I take care of myself, how do I get a job, right? And so all of those things in one place really helps that victim to understand that there's a team here. There's an entire network of people who are willing and able to help if they know where to go. And oftentimes they miss that. Where do I go? So putting it all in one place helps them when they're already overwhelmed. Well, and I think it'd be great to have. I I think you're in the right place to accomplish it. (laughs) I mean, by all means, you have a great support uh, from your boss, from the community. I mean... Uh, we have such a large support on law enforcement mm-hmm. and uh, from this community and just protecting our citizens, protecting our children, everything. So you're in the right place. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure the next step on making that happen. but uh, I'm working on it. But, uh, Baby it's, steps. It, it's definitely the, the <laughs> next thing. So you had mentioned, you know, taking care of the kids. Yes. And uh, so just like uh, the DA's office, I, I think that um, I think Brett has a whiteboard or something that y'all are unaware of. Y'all just have projects coming out all the time yes. uh, to address things. So there's a new one mm-hmm. uh, that we're starting Friday, yes, yes uh, in reference to kids. Uh, and uh, another uh, great person at y'all's office, Shanna Redwine, mm-hmm. who, who is uh, my boss, who my is immediate boss. boss. Yep, she's and so fantastic. 
and she takes care of special victims and children and everything. So uh, they have started a handle with care Mm -hmm. uh, for law enforcement. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. So this is uh, Shanna's baby, and um, she is... you know, we are so fortunate that Brett Ligon puts us in these positions and then gives us the opportunity to run with it, right? So I talk about things with domestic violence that we're developing, and, and he really, like you talk about that whiteboard, it's really just the passion of the person that's there in that position, sure. and he gives us the ability to go out and, and run with it. So Shanna is the um, division chief over the special victims unit. So that is all special child crimes, um, physical abuse, child uh, sexual assaults, domestic violence, and then our um, human trafficking division and our ICAC, which is the Internet Crimes Against Children. So she is over all of that. And this handle with care really comes because we all specialize in the special victim needs of of our cases. And what we find is that children, again, going back to them watching that abuse or experiencing it themselves, and then they don't report until they go to school, right? But oftentimes they don't report at all until they're adults because it's too scary. Their parent that is being hurt might get hurt if they tell, or they might get hurt themselves. And and living with that fear of this all-powerful abuser in the home silences those children. So even if the police come out and the the victim, the adult victim, um, actually calls the police, that child is still experiencing abuse. Okay, and that child is witnessing things that we don't even know. The statistic is greater than 90% of children, even when the parents think they're locked in the back bedroom and the yelling and the screaming and the hurtfulness all happens away from them, those children know everything that happens. And so those children experience that trauma. They live with that trauma daily, and it affects their ability to learn. It affects their ability to go to school. And so when they go to school the next morning after the police have been there, or they go to the next school the next morning after there's been a long night at home with nothing but fighting until 4 a.m., the child hasn't had what they need in order to go to school and learn appropriately. And they also don't have the opportunity to necessarily tell their teachers about it. And so Handle With Care is the idea that we can somehow let children know and let their um, caregivers at the school system know that there's something going on with that child without disclosing all of the personal information that would violate their their right to privacy under the Victim Rights Act, right? So what we do is we have a an email address and um we let the school district know very basic information about that child but just enough to get them to that child and then we just let them know handle with care and that phrase means there's something going on with this child they've experienced trauma and they may not be okay during the the classroom and that gives the school the opportunity to put some extra eyes on that student or to address it appropriately without um that child having to tell themselves. Well, and, and the DA's office has done all the hard work with this. They really have. I mean, uh, the rollout has been great. Uh, you know, Shanna contacted us about it, uh, us being uh, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, there really was not much for us to do. I right. mean, they had already made the contacts with the school. They had already set up the system. Uh, it's obviously not that hard. I mean, on every scene that we're the child, we notify CPS for us to send, send another notification that, hey, th- this kid may yep. need to be watched over. Um, again, it's minimal amount of work on our part, a great deal of work on y'all setting it up. Um, so at least we can bring attention to the school, uh, that there is a kid there that you may need to watch, may need to take care of. So uh, I think it's an awesome program. I hope that, uh, uh, the rollout goes well. It should again, uh, start tomorrow. I know that we have our posters up, we're hitting roll call with it. Uh, so we should start seeing the impact of it, hopefully. Uh, over the holidays when another time that people force themselves to stay together when they can't stand yes. to be around one another, <laughs> yes. uh, which usually ends up uh, in in our arena and in y'all. Right. We get a lot of calls over holidays. <laughs> so, but uh, Echo, I thank you so much for everything you do for this county and just for the programs the DA's office does uh, and your attention that you bring to the victims and everything out there. So I thank you so much for coming in and just uh, sharing this information with everybody. Thank you so much for the opportunity.